Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. On this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the university's debacle, and you ask us, what if Charles Moore and Paul Dacre become in charge of our media? So, COVID outbreaks throughout the country mean that thousands of students have had to isolate in their accommodation, and the whole situation appears to be quite shambolic. The government has defended sending students back to university, but Labour has called on the government to consider pausing the return of students because of what's happening at a number of universities. Was this inevitable or or was this an avoidable scenario? It's one of those things where it's kind of like, it's from where are we kind of starting the kind of like clock on this policy problem? I'm aware that listeners are almost certainly getting sick of me being like, you know, it would have been a good thing not to be obsessed, not to be spending any time on in April fixing defence procurement or like getting rid of senior members of the civil service or like any of the other like pet projects that Downing Street has decided that it cannot possibly have like put a pin in until 2021. Ultimately, like students are the kind of, well, obviously some students are in high risk demographics. Some students would, if they got sick, be in the unlucky teeny tiny minority of, of, of people in that age you know in the kind of well it's not all students are in the kind of classical student age group but like you know people in the the kind of the average sort of 17 18 year olds who've just done their scottish hires or their a levels you know that, that statistically right they could end up be at risk if they yeah like yeah they, they could yeah they could they could be one of the tiny minority of, of perfectly healthy people in that age group who, who who do keel over but the central problem right is that students are a massive vector of disease in the vast majority of them will be asymptomatic there's a reason why universities are such an important part of urban regeneration over the last 30 years is that you know they come they pay for things they move on they get jobs they help generate new industries so they are kind of like from a public health perspective, obviously, if you don't have the ability to test trace and isolate new cases in place, if you haven't built up NHS healthcare capacity to a point where you can, because I think when lots of people talk about the like, oh, why don't we just take it on the chin? It's only 250,000 or, or, or whatever the kind of projection now would be. Well, it's a lot more because as it stands, it would probably cripple the whole of our, the whole of British healthcare. And so lots of people who would, you know, like things we would never think of as deadly, like, you know, 
accidentally cutting your arm open while you're doing some DIY or whatever suddenly become lethal because you can't get into a hospital. Mm. So having not done either of those things, yes, it's pretty inevitable, which I guess is why I struggle to answer that question. Alva, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. Because when you think about, I suppose that the best thing to think about is through the prism of Fresher's flu. Anyone who has gone to university will probably be familiar with the concept and will have probably experienced it, where you basically have thousands and thousands and thousands of students coming from all corners of the country and internationally, suddenly gathering in a new place, socialising together, running down their immune systems in a lot of cases by not sleeping and drinking a lot, possibly for the first time ever. And as a mix of all this, of all these new germs spreading, germs from different parts of the country mixing, people get sick. And I mean, I had freshers flu, it was incredibly unpleasant. And you kind of don't recover it for all of the first term, you feel run down the, the entire time. But I suppose that if you think about the way ordinary non-life-threatening viruses spread in university settings, it makes it just incredibly obvious that this was a huge policy challenge for this government, because this is effectively a story of creating thousands, I don't know if it's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of new households, but a huge number of people will be leaving home to go and live somewhere else. And you're basically creating a a sort of unprecedented level of new household formations, where the entire policy that we have at the moment around social distancing and the the kind of the the foundation of it is that within your household you don't social distance then there's a there's a tacit acceptance that even though you would try within a household to isolate and not pass it on that households pass viruses on to each other that acts as a one unit of catching the virus and the idea is to reduce transmission between households but if suddenly all these people from all these different households, normally people like living at home with their families, go off and live in new houses, new halls, then like, obviously there will be a problem with outbreaks, not even in terms of these students going to pubs or partying or like doing freshers stuff, but even just the fact of, of like that number of students all moving homes all at the same time. I think it's just such an obvious hurdle. And I mean, back in September... I mean, this is still September, gosh, long month, but at the start of <laughs> September, when we were coming back from parliamentary recess and, and we were thinking about the challenges ahead for this government. And then I wrote a piece on planning reforms as the big sort of looming, I, th- I still think it is one of the big looming areas for a potential rebellion or defeat for the government, even though there are lots of other potential rebellions on the horizon. But looking at the the, the months up until Christmas that the government had in store, I think it was really clear that universities returning would be a huge challenge just for precisely that reason, that that's so many people mixing. And I think even questions around student compliance and whether they can have an ordinary freshers and so on, we can come on to that later and, you know, the toll it's taking on them. But just even, I think even within these structures where they aren't really being allowed to socialise and and are being kept in, just the very fact of, of all those households mixing meant that this was largely inevitable. I think the the thing I've been thinking about is what the alternatives would be, because I suppose my attitude 
has always been but especially since being home and you know seeing seeing friends from home who have siblings who were a level age and so affected by the big crisis over exam results who were leaving school and thinking about their options i was just so overwhelmingly struck by how difficult this how difficult it is to be at any point of transition in your life in this pandemic that if you were moving between jobs before when this virus hit you're very likely not to have government support at the moment if you you know recently became self-employed you were looking for another job but also if you're leaving school at any of those transition points I think this is a, a really really difficult time for anyone at a transition but particularly if you're a school leaver at 16 or 18 and you know putting yourself in the in the shoes of that kind of a person I mean maybe your A-level results were a big disappointment and a big stress maybe you were downgraded you didn't get into your first choice because of a a failed exam system and then maybe even with with all of the just the adjustments and all and all of that faff maybe you still aren't getting to go this year maybe you've had to defer because there wasn't enough room for you or maybe you've still got in but even like beyond the, the choice of university what else are you going to do I think university has looked like the best option for people lucky enough to get in that has looked like the best option for a lot of young people when you look at a job market and you think, well, how am I going to find a job in this economy when so many of my friends are losing jobs? How am I going to get, you know, a part time job for a sort of gap year or to sort of work out what I want to do and to pay my way a bit to help my mum and dad out with with rent and expenses at home? Because there are, you know, there, there are no hospitality jobs. If you had one already, you've probably lost it or, you know, or feel likely to lose it. And then you can't even, you know, if you have a bit of money, you can't think, oh, I'll maybe, you know, travel for a bit or, you know, do an internship or, you know, teach English abroad or something because the prospects for traveling are really limited. So I think university, even though it looked like it was going to be a kind of a lesser experience and a bit of a challenge, looked like the best option for these students. And it's really important to the economy and to prosperity of universities that they are there and paying their fees and so on so I think it's it's just like a really horrible situation that this was kind of I think many people will have calculated this was the best thing to do and now they're basically trapped indoors in situations that I mean are sort of 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 questionable legality almost and what do you make of of the way so many students Mm -hmm. have been kind of cooped in from the sort of human rights perspective yeah well no I think I think that's exactly it about sort of keeping them cooped in and on the whole you know not ideal accommodation poor quality you know rentals or or student halls that are in you know quite old buildings and places like that it sort of betrays something that I think speaks to a wider omission in the government's entire approach to to trying to tackle coronavirus which is they forget that not everyone works and socializes and studies like the majority of of them did you know so i was doing an event for the, for the new statesmen sort of labor conference fringe remotely with with uh, john ashworth and emma hardy who's the shadow further education minister and some and some public health professionals from the north as well and they were talking about this kind of boarding school mindset that the government has towards university you know in these measures or in preparing for bringing students back to university they've kind of forgotten that most students need to work most students will be living in you know not ideal housing and will struggle to pay the rent for that housing if they can't work a lot of students commute to university as do university staff and so all of these things threatening to to keep students away from home over christmas just 
absolutely make no sense for the majority of normal people's lives. And I think that oversight, of course, I'm not pretending that I would know any better how to keep the economy functioning during a pandemic. But I mean, the fact that they've forgotten all of these things, or at least haven't focused on them or made them a priority, means, again, that they've made decisions that risk the virus spreading, which is something that they're, you know, they should be trying to stop. It's it's very similar, in my opinion, to the way that they didn't account for the fact that a lot of people won't be able to afford to self-isolate for two weeks. They only really recognised that that was a problem in early September when they started trialing quarantine payments. But that you know, th- those are still very low payments, and they're only in high risk areas. And so that, to me, just shows this sort of short sighted, old fashioned sort of middle class uh, lens that this government has in terms of everything that, that it's that it's preparing for. You know, it's simil- similar similar um, with schools as well and and the childcare issues that have arisen from that. I do think that of course there that universities reopening was going to see a, a, a surge in cases, but I think that the way that they they prepared students for that hasn't actually, you know, hasn't actually led to any measures that will actually stop the, the virus spreading beyond that. So, you know, locking them down is an issue in itself. And it's also a mental health issue as well, which I think is another thing that the government has has dropped the ball on in this time. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. We've had a number of questions about the potential appointments of Charles Moore and Paul Dacre to BBC chairman and head of Ofcom. So we're going to answer them sort of as a three. We've basically, yeah, we've had a kind of full gamut of questions. We've ranging from, you know, is this a, a kind of sign of a genuine kind of cultural mindset in, in Downing Street or is it just a dead cat? Is the real problem their political stances or the lack of a formal recruitment process and their lack of genuine fit for the roles? And when we have, you know, with the Conservatives looking to strengthen their control over institutions like the BBC and Ofcom, why is there so little talk about setting up alternative media institutions on the left? And a variety of, of, of questions on the kind of appointment. So in case you are not one of our listeners who was clearly particularly excited by this story, Charles Moore obviously is a former editor of The Spectator and Telegraph, is tipped to be chair of the BBC. Paul Dacre, former editor of the Mail, tips to be chair of Ofcom. Now, I think like, in some ways, one, actually, like it's important to, to note right, that neither of these things are actually guaranteed to happen. They aren't directly within the control of the prime minister. They are within the control of the Public Appointments Commission. And I mean, 
obviously, like, who applies is kind of sort of is slightly directed. I, I think you can make a much stronger case for more being qualified to do it, the chairing job, than you can for Paul Dacre, who you'd be forgiven from some of the reporting around it for thinking that, like, Ofcom's sole regulatory job was to, like, sit there pressing, was for its chair to sit there pressing a button marked BBC, good or bad. But it's quite a broad job involving not just broadcast, but the whole of telecom. So it's not clear to me that either of these things will necessarily happen. And, like, yeah, obviously the timing does make you slightly think, is this just, like, a kind of... I Not even so much a dead cat. I think it's actually, like... This Downing Street is really comfortable. Like, it, it feels at its happiest and its most confident when it's doing its kind of suck-it liberals routine. And obviously, let's face it, right, the parliamentary management is so bad and it's it's hard to see how this government is going to enact r- radical legislation. It's frankly difficult to see how the operational competence is going to improve, uh, seeing as that would, you know, require, like, getting a grip from the centre, not hiring people, and you know, within a very limited social circle, etc., etc. So uh, part of me thinks it's actually about comfort note zone, not dead cat, because, like, also real talk, right, this isn't actually unusual behaviour. Like, I think in an odd way, it's like we've all, like, started swallowing the Kool-Aid of this new Conservative Party, then, like, I mean, yeah, the, the last chair of the BBC Trust became a Conservative minister afterwards. David Young was literally appointed by Thatcher to scrap the licence fee, then didn't, much to her, her disappointment. It, it's not like, it's not particularly new for governments, particularly for Conservative governments, to use its appointments to shape political preferences. Uh, the reason why, I think actually in some ways, right, the reason why it tends to be distinct to Conservative governments is that first-term Labour governments tend to be a bit more kind of like, oh, we're only just here. And yeah, actually, even in the first term under Cameron, right, like, you could, this kind of idea that, like, you can go, oh, there were loads of lefties appointed. It's like, that's because it's sensible politics to bind in the other side by, like, appointing the likes of Sally Morgan and Alan Milburn, where you agree with someone on in the other party on a specific issue, it of course, or Simon Stevens indeed as NHR, NHS England, when you agree with a party on a specific issue, it makes sense to bind them into it in order to advance your overall political project. So I kind of, I guess that's my very incoherent, like, I think it kind of both is and isn't significant and is a bit of a return to the comfort zone. Alva, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I broadly agree with you that I, I mean, I agree with you in both. I am not convinced it will actually happen because there is a formal recruitment process. And this was just a briefing about the Prime Minister and Downing Street's preferences for these roles. And I also broadly agree that I think that this is just, again, the Downing Street operation, you know, reverting to its comfort zone and throwing a bone to parts of its supporter base. It's a really easy win to brief something like this. And for people who, you know, think that political correctness has gone mad and they don't like the lefty BBC, they can all go, hurrah, you know, look at our great great government. It's a, it's a kind of easy good news story, even if it doesn't end up happening. I mean, I think it's interesting that without... I'm going to give a plug for another podcast from a rival publication, but Katie Balls <laughs> on on her Women with Balls podcast interviewed Sarah Sands, the outgoing editor of the Today program. She also used to edit the Evening Standard and some other places. She also used to work at the Telegraph. They have a really interesting conversation about the rumours that Charles Moore might be appointed BBC chairman before it was properly briefed to the papers. There were just a few stories about it that weren't taken very seriously. 
And I thought it was a really, in- I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting interview anyway, but I think on just on the question of his suitability for BBC chairman, I think that their conversation is worth listening to because Sarah Sands talks about, she I mean, she knew Charles Moore for a very, very long time and worked with him closely. And she brought him in to guest edit the Today programme. And um, she talks with a lot of affection about, I can't remember the exact examples, but he really shoehorned some kind of right-wing kind of incendiary stories into his guest edit, as well as some really interesting and thoughtful and unique angles on lots of issues. And, and she was sort of talking about how essentially what she was saying was that he isn't very BBC and that his political preferences really shine through in his editorial stance. But it is, in a sense, a shame that that is prohibited in some ways by the BBC, because there was lots of really juicy, interesting, golden stuff that came with that. And so I don't think he's very BBC in terms of that fundamental, you know, that fundamental understanding that we have of impartiality and not revealing any sort of political preference even though he has a reputation as a really great editor and as a leading figure in journalism has so much to contribute. So I'm not, I think it would be really interesting if he were to get that appointment and and a very significant statement about the direction of the BBC um, if he were to get that appointment because his his fundamental approach to journalism and, and, and editing is just a little bit different and not really very BBC. I don't really say that as a criticism, but just as a, as a fact that it would be a slight change of direction. And and he's the less extreme example. I think the appointment of, of Paul Dacre to Ofcom would be um, even more significant for reasons that I think everyone's kind of aware of. So that would be my take on it, that, that like this maybe isn't going to happen. And it's kind of to rattle liberals, which it definitely has done because it made the front page of The Guardian today. I think it's I think it's it's interesting to see the government sort of coating itself in in its comfort blanket of you know BBC bashing appointing people seen as friends of of the government or at least you know the the approach of this government or the, the ideological stance of this government to to top positions you know it's just so what this number 10 operation does and does it you know to the detriment of of its actual competence and and popularity you know you can see with the Dido Harding debacle over testing you know ultimately if these two people are appointed to those positions the BBC you know will operate differently will probably be funded differently etc but you know if the government is bad (laughs) um, and making mistakes then journalists at the BBC and elsewhere will be covering that and you know Paul Dacre all of his flaws he is he is a journalist at heart and he is someone who defends a free press and I just don't think that wrapping yourself in this sort of duvet of liberal bashing BBC bashing oh we'll just brief this to piss off the Guardian and oh we'll try and get our friends in these positions because it's you know because it's time for conservatism to be the the cultural norm for the, for this country and everything which it already is because of successive conservative governments um you know i i just don't see this fundamentally changing very much about how this government's policies are scrutinized and how this government is covered if it continues to to make mistakes and govern poorly and i just think this maverick government that thinks it's changing things up is actually just fiddling with things around the edge that it, that really it's just using to make itself feel better about itself in a time when it's when it's operating quite poorly 
good luck to them if this is that if this is what they want to use as their route to success because I don't think it will work. I mean, like, so to take like the BBC. So I mean, one like yeah. Also, ultimately, like the thing about like the role of a chair is that you actually don't have that much power. Like the in both cases, the chief exec or as it's called in the BBC context, the director general hold like significant power. Now, obviously, nominally, if you are Charles Moore, you could turn up and like sack Tim Davy, the new DG, if you really wanted to. Although it's really not clear to me why you would want to, right? Like in terms of the things that like Charles Moore dislikes about the BBC, right? Which obviously the license fee is kind of like, you know, the, the sort of most prominent example. I, I hate to break it to, to you, but the, the license fee is going to go. Like it's not a sustainable yeah. revenue model. Like uh, I know lots of people in the BBC like to kid themselves, and it is. But what do, do people think magic is going to happen? And somehow, like a bunch of twenty-somethings who who don't use it, don't use the BBC very often, or don't watch live TV, or have a Netflix or a Now TV subscription or whatever, are suddenly going to go. Oh, actually, yeah. Do you, do you know what? I guess we've got now TV. I think you have to have TV. I don't, I don't really understand how it works. I have a TV license because I feel guilty about the music radio I listen to. But like, ultimately, like the, the BBC's current revenue model is not sustainable, right? Their new DG, Tim Davey, who he has a largely commercial commercial background, you know, fully understands this, has been very articulate about it, right? In terms of their kind of expressed cultural criticism of the BBC, which is, you know, too many graduates, too metropolitan. I mean, one, again, like, he's talked about all these things. But two, as you say, Anish, right, like, it's like, guys, at some point, and this, I think, is one of the fascinating things about this kind of current incarnation of the Conservative Party, right, is that, like, they've convinced themselves that they are like Likud or the BJP or, or, or Law and Justice, right? But what all of those kind of other parties in the kind of populist right space have in common is that they are in countries where, in one way or another, the political left has been dominant for decades, right? Whereas the BBC is a conservative invention. I don't mean that in a kind of like, you know, I, I don't mean that in a like Stephen Bush's usual criticisms of the BBC's political coverage and the way it operates and the things it does and doesn't assume. I mean that in a like, it was invented under the Conservatives. Most of its chairs have been appointed by Conservative Prime Ministers and large numbers of them have been appointed like with specific political thing. It's not least because like, yeah, it's very easy to kind of like go, oh, well, so-and-so's a crossbencher or so-and-so's not. But if you actually look at the way they vote in the House of Lords, you're like, hmm, this person looks an awful lot like they're a Tory. Which, I mean, I do not have a problem with, like, a political party which wins an election appointing people to the organisations it runs. I just think, like, guys, if there's a problem of, like, the BBC having too much graduate recruitment, not enough ways for people who, who don't usually turn them to get into it, which I think there is, that cannot be separated from the political party which is in charge of labour market regulation, which... I have bad news is you and has been you for most of the last century. Like the whole, the whole <laughs> agenda is just, is just insane. And yeah, I kind of think that in many ways, and I guess it comes back to your point about Dido Harding. And if anything, I feel like they are less likely to succeed in getting the things that they want than a kind of happening anyway. I'm aware the question we haven't really touched on is like the alternative media institutions. I bluntly don't think that the case for alternative media institutions is going to be different whether or not these, opponent, these appointments go ahead. 
And I think this is the thing is, I think if you actually look at the tangible issues around how politics is covered, covered, and I have no idea which political party which would would do better or worse if 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 policy was covered in a better way in a mainstream audience, right? Because I just think politics would be so different if that happened. But in terms of those tangible things, I just I just think it's really difficult to see what it is that will change and isn't going to change anyway. Beyond as you say, like and it's just kind of like government that loves like going oh do you know what we're good at annoying the guardian and it's just like imagine for a moment guys that you run the country you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anusha kellyan and my colleagues alva ray and stephen bush we're produced by nick hilton and our music is devil with the devil sorry about all the drilling Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.